If you would this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 28, and we'll pick up there in verse 11. So Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, and we'll start reading with verse 11. Now, before we read, just as a little context, remember that we are looking at different passages post-resurrection, but before Pentecost. So, post-resurrection, pre-Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday is coming soon, and uh, it's 50 days after Passover. And so, therefore, we are looking at different scenes from the life of Jesus and what's recorded here in Scripture after the resurrection, but before the Holy Spirit comes in full um, at the day of Pentecost. And here in Matthew 28, you'll remember that in 27, He is crucified, He is uh, buried, and they actually ask uh, Pontius Pilate for a guard uh, to guard the temple. So they want want a group of guys to guard the temple. Because they said, hey, look, he prophesied that he would rise in three days, so we want somebody watching to make sure this doesn't happen. And, of course, Pilate just simply says, well, look, you have your own guard, so go send them. Secure it as much as you want to. And so they do. And this happens at the very uh, end of chapter 27. Then the resurrection occurs, which we've already read uh, about on Easter and then uh, subsequently after that. And then now we pick up in verse 11 and notice what happens here. So, right there at the end of uh, 10... Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while He were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. And we know that there's no story here. There's no uh, episode in the Bible that's not there but by Your design. And so, Lord, even though some are difficult to understand, may You give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning what it is that Your Holy Spirit wants to say to us through Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why the Bible isn't clear always? Have you ever wondered why it's so difficult to sometimes get your mind wrapped around what's going on? Have you ever wondered why it's not just easy to understand? Have you ever wondered why Jesus doesn't just appear to you? I mean, if He wants His name to be spread, if He wants disciples, wouldn't it be easier if God just, boom, showed up and said, Hi, my name is God. You need to obey Me. And you would, of course, have no other choice but to obey Him because He is, after all, God. You ever wondered those questions? 
Why? Why is it so hard to believe? Why, if you're God, would you make it so hard for us to be disciples? I mean, why not make it easy? Why not make it automatic? Why not even just give us no choice? These are good questions. Um, Maybe, let me redirect your thinking here, maybe it is clear, the Bible... We're the ones who are unclear. Maybe if we were really see ourselves, we're kind of sideways. And He's the one who is upright. Maybe the signs are all there that He is here, (laughs) that He is with us, of the great acts that He's done. Maybe it's all right in front of us and yet we are too blind to see it. Too involved with ourself to know it. Too self-concerned, too self-interested to care. And we just flip it off as, hey, you know, he's got his own problems and he made it too hard for me, so he'll just have to judge me at the end. And he'll take it easy on me, of course. Or will he? Is it our own laziness? Doesn't he want to be known? Doesn't He want to reveal Himself? Doesn't He want His love to be around the world? Around you? Of course He does. So why? Well, here's the thing. is Last week, if you'll remember, we actually looked at... uh, The sermon was titled, Ladies First, because they were first to the tomb. Kind of appropriate on Mother's Day. They were first there. And yet, what does it say about the disciples' first initial response to the ladies. They say, hey look, He's risen! The Lord is actually risen! And they say, are you sure about that? Are you sure? Now, here, even the high priest, who were not His followers, knew that He had prophesied to rise from the dead. They knew that. And of course the disciples knew that. They had heard it over and over again. And yet, when they get a report that it's been done, they don't believe it. Here in this story, the high priests are trying to manipulate the situation, you see, because they know it's happened. (laughs) And they want to cover it up. And yet the disciples seem to be hesitant to actually believe. Interestingly, um, here in our story, it's reported, and don't you find this fascinating? That it's actually reported here that some doubted. Now, if we read on about the Great Commission, it it says that some worshipped and others doubted. Verse 17, notice, And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Now they were... You remember, Peter's already doubted, right? I mean, he, he lost belief and faith to a little girl in a courtyard. Um... You know, it wasn't some big strong soldier with a, with a blade. It was a little girl that just simply said, Hey, I know you. You are following Him around. You are one of His disciples. Look at the way you talk. You're from the south. I can tell. You're up here in the north. What are you doing? I know you're one of His disciples. You're from Galilee. The armpit, you know, of the Roman Empire. And so he loses faith. And we didn't really focus last week on this, but I want to bring it to light at the beginning of this sermon. And that is... At the end of our reading last week, it talks about the ladies being there first, and then some people die. But it says, 
Look, when you go and tell the disciples and Peter, put it in our text in Mark, go tell the disciples and Peter. Why? Because Peter had disbelieved. He was the leader. You remember Jesus had already put him as leader, and so he was restoring him. This is part of his restoration. And so Matthew, interestingly, who was Levi, you remember the call of Levi, Levi is Matthew's other name, he was a tax collector. He was called from his tax booth and he left and became a disciple of Jesus Christ. And here he puts in a story of doubt. He puts in a story where people were knowingly doubting whether or not Jesus had really risen from the dead. They weren't believing, they were trying to cover up. They were trying to manipulate the story. Now, if you're going to tell a story and you want people to believe it, sometimes don't you leave out details of the opposition? I mean, quite frankly, if you're, if you're in, a, in an argument with somebody and you're wanting to prove your point, you don't really bring up the best points of the opposition, do you? Because that almost makes it sound equal. Hey, you know, well, let me just let you be aware of this too, that there's a really good argument against what I'm saying. That's not really going to help your point. So a lot of times we just kind of don't mention those. You follow me? If you're in a meeting and you, you know of some problems, but you want to present yourself as authoritative and you know, we're very confident about our program, you're not going to mention those things. But here, the Bible is not scared to mention the fact that many did not believe what had happened. Even apparently among some of the disciples of Jesus, not the twelve, but followers of His. And so again, I ask the question, you know, why? Why would, why would you do this? Why would you, why would you introduce and interject doubt into a story? I mean, again, if I was going to tell the story, I, you know, even when I talk to people sometimes about the resurrection, I, I don't really bring up a lot of the objections. I try, to, I try to give the good arguments, right? Here's the point with the Gospel, though. It's not an apology. Now, that's a technical term that just simply means not an argument. It's not an argument. This is a story about telling the truth. And the truth was, some doubted. Some wondered if this really could be. Some hesitated to really believe. And so they weren't making an argument, but rather they were telling the truth. And in telling the truth, sometimes you have to bring up the tough parts. My father, who is my pastor, who I respect deeply, who discipled me more than any other in my life, um, used to be an alcoholic and was about to lose his marriage and subsequently his children, my brother and I, even considered suicide because of his alcoholism. Now, if he wanted to present himself to my brother and I, Justin and myself, as strong as someone who needed to be trusted, someone who knew what he was saying, which us parents want to come across like that, I know what is right for you. you know. We sometimes leave out the bad parts, don't we? We don't just expose all that stuff. I mean, you don't enter a meeting and start talking about your personal life. It's going to discredit you. And yet, my dad was honest enough with my brother and I to tell us his struggles. To tell us the truth. 
Now, what does that do for us? Well, I knew that life was not at the end of a bottle. It's not where life is. He had already been down that road. He shared what that's like with my brother and I. I never had to make the mistake he made. Because he told me the truth. He could have covered it up. He could have just not mentioned it. But instead, he told the truth and we benefited from that. Because the reality is, when you tell the truth, it helps everybody. We like to present ourselves as complete, confident, good young boys and girls, right? The reality of ourself, of our life, is often different than that though, isn't it? The struggles that go inside, I can't see them. Maybe those closest to you can't see them, but they're there. The past, it's there. And all those things discredit us. And we wonder sometimes, don't you wonder? I surely do. How can I be a representative of Jesus Christ? Well, the good news is, there's been many people in the Bible who were great people of faith. Think Abraham, who is the New Testament's premier example of faith and belief, and yet, and yet, thanks be to God, he failed God, did he not? He didn't believe at times. He tried to make it happen himself, and God says, no, that's not my way. That's not trusting me, Abraham. We think of Moses, I mean, a prophet of God, a friend of God, and yet he's not allowed to go into the promised land because he messed up. That's good news for us. doesn't give us a license to mess up and sin and just say, oh well, you know, never going to make it. It's kind of like what C.S. Lewis says. I love this illustration because my first car was actually a standard, which is almost obsolete today. Except for, of course, sports cars, which, which I don't have. But So, on a standard, you know, you could say to yourself, well, you know what, I'm not ever going to be able to shift the gears right every single time. So, you know, I'm not even going to try. No, you don't do that. You try for perfection, even if you know you're not ever going to get it. Which is the point about our life. We aim for perfection because Jesus says, Be you perfect, be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, what if we were able to find the Holy Grail? You know, the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be historically accurate and finally prove our point? What if, what if we found the shroud of Jesus? And you see, all these, you see all these emails, and I have students all the time, hey, did you hear that they found this? <clears throat> or, they, or they found that of Jesus. You know, they found this of, of James's, or James's, to, you know, Paul's shipwreck, Noah's ark. I mean, all this stuff's always coming. And people, people get so excited about it because they feel like it finally proves, because we're the loonies, Right? And we feel like if we just had a little historical data, a little bit more data, we feel like we could believe better. But what would it prove, really? 
I mean, Indiana Jones, of course, he's looking for it. Going on his great adventures, you know, for the Holy Grail, you know. Um, what if we were to find it? What if we were to see a miracle right before our eyes? Would we believe? Well, we have examples in the Old Testament of people who heard God's voice from heaven. The Israelites. And they got scared. And they said, we don't want to hear that anymore. You talk through Moses from now on. That that freaks us out a little bit too much. It's too much. We have people who saw the Red Sea part. We have people who saw dead men rise. But did it really help them have faith in Jesus? What is really enough? Because you ever notice how your mind plays tricks on you? How after some time, you begin to even doubt very strong experiences in your life. Such experiences as love. Or maybe your own salvation. I mean, you have something big happen in your life. You meet this girl, meet this guy. It's all gravy for a while. And in 20 years down the road, you wonder if they love you. You doubt. You doubt. Or in your own spiritual life. Think about great mountaintop, as we call them, experiences with Jesus. Places where, where, I mean, you can almost feel God in your body. And yet, 10 years down the line, you wonder. You feel alone. Like what Reagan said, I know I'm with Him. I know He's, I know he's with us. God is always with us. And we're, we're saying, yeah, amen. Right? But He sure doesn't feel like it sometimes, does it? We doubt. We question. All sin comes ultimately from doubting. Every bit of it does. Notice the first sin. All Satan had to do, all the serpent had to do was inject a little bit of doubt. All he said was, did God really say that you would die? Because I think what he really means is, he doesn't want you to be like him. Because he knows good and evil. And he doesn't want you to be like him. And that little bit of doubt began to grow, didn't it? She starts to think, well, huh. I wonder if God is trying to hide something from me. And had God hid anything from them? No. He even told them, look, don't mess with this tree. Don't do that. You will surely die. Everything else is yours. Don't mess with that tree. He had hid nothing from them. He had given them everything that they needed. And yet, because that little injection of doubt, it begins to grow into disbelief. And then we begin to question. Then we begin to lose our faith and trust in God. And then what happens is this. We take a hold of the situation. I think I can handle this better than God. Now, none of us would cognitively in this room sitting here saying, say that, would we? Oh no, I I know better than God. But when we sin, we're saying, I know better than God. 
We've all done it, which is why Peter Crave, the Catholic philosopher, says, when we sin, we do the most insane act. We're all insane. Again, that's why I say, maybe it's not, on, it's not God's fault that He's hidden. Maybe it's not God's fault that we can't see Him. Maybe it's not God's fault that He doesn't do what I want Him to do. Do you see the, do you see the egocentrism? The center is not God. The center is me. Now, Chesterton of recent days has been very helpful to me, G.K. Chesterton. Well, he's been hurtful to me and he's been helpful to me all at the same time. Hurtful because it's hard to read him. Helpful because what little bit I've been able to glean is is very helpful. C.S. Lewis, by the way, loved Chesterton, so did Tolkien. One thing that Chesterton says that still boggles my mind is that insane people trust their self. Have you ever met someone who really thought they were someone else when you knew for a fact they weren't? I have. I went to Whitfield, which reminds you of one of those um, old scary movies where there's an old asylum, you know, with, with crazy people, maniacs, people who believe there's certain things that they're not, people who are medicated heavily. It's an old mental institution, Whitfield is in Mississippi. So I went there on a... I took a class, actually. Uh, Where we went there, we had to go there and actually stay with these people, love on these people. And I'll never forget two things. One is the shock and awe of being there, seeing people who... One guy believed he was King David. He was dead serious. You could not have reasoned with him any other way because he trusted every ounce of what he was saying. It wasn't a joke to him. It was dead serious. The other thing is, there was a fellow uh, clergy guy there who, who was, who was um, one, of the, one of the counselors and, and all. And he loved those people like Jesus. I, I, I mean, this, this one woman cussed him out as he hugged her. She, you know, just, just vitriol. She, I mean, she wasn't even there, really, mentally. And yet he just went around, t- and the way he touched people and loved them, I mean, somebody, I mean this one lady sitting there, this far from the table, just a few inches drooling for two hours. She never moved, just had to blink. And he's just loving on these people. It's shocking to me. Shocking on two fronts. I can only hope that one day I'll have that kind of love for anybody. Because we're so selfish. We believe in ourself. And we're told that, aren't we, in society? We're told, believe in yourself. Have com- What's the new thing? Self-confidence, uh, self-esteem, that's what it's called. <laughs> We're told that kids need to have a lot of self What is that? They need to be self-centered? Is that what we really want? Is that what the Bible... T- Where does the Bible mention self-esteem? No, we need God's esteem, not our own. It's not about us. When we make it about us, that's being insane. And, we really, and people really believe that, don't they? They believe that because they drive a nice car, they're somebody. They believe that because they make a lot of money, that that means they're powerful. We believe because we wear certain clothes or look a certain way, that that means something. What does that mean? 
we're all going to the grave. The grave is the great equalizer of mankind. It doesn't matter who you are. You're going to die. What's left then? Three seconds after you're dead, all that matters is Jesus. What else matters? And yet, we sure think other things matter, don't we? Do you see what I'm saying here? We're insane. We're the ones that are insane. And when we demand of God, you show yourself to me. You, you know, I I hear this all the time. (laughs) Prove to me that God exists. Prove to me that you... Okay, the question you ought to shoot back to him, what would be proof enough? Will be proof enough. Ultimately, nothing would because we won't allow it to be. We're in control. We're maintaining and controlling and putting up barriers in our life because we are the ones who have taken hold of the reins. Just like Adam and Eve did. And when they did that, they caused separation in their life. In other words, sin. Which, by the way, if you want a fact of life, you want an indisputable fact, sin is. No one can disprove sin exists. Every religion, every society has rules to make sure we don't kill our people, kill each other. That we treat each other with some kind of consensual kindness. We understand Sin. It's a fact. But aren't there more facts in life than sin? Not just scientific. Science is always trying to push us into this thing where it's indisputable. And yet, science changes, doesn't it? I mean, you get, dude, Galileo, he changes everything. Einstein changes everything. Who's next? All, all science is observation. So, how could that be an end all fact? observations change. Once we know more, well, then we're going to call it differently. It wasn't that we were wrong before. We just didn't know enough. That's okay. That's how science should work. But you can't demand of God scientific data. He's not matter. He's not material. Therefore, you're going to have to have a different sort of sense to pick Him up, and that's faith. That's where faith comes in. What does the Bible say about faith? Well, it says a lot. I've got a list here of about 54 verses I could sit here and read off to you that specifically deal with faith. The just, the righteous, the Christian will live by faith. And there's a lot of things that will make you doubt. And ultimately, all... Follow me here. He'll be okay. He's my son, I know. All sane people are going to doubt themselves. If you're sane, then you're going to doubt. If you're insane, you're never going to doubt. Which, that's a scary place to be. No one is ever going to be at a place where they have zero doubt in their life. Doubt can be a good thing. We've talked about it negatively. But now I'm going to talk about it positively for a second. It can 
push us to deeper faith. Enter in my relationship with Jessica. So, when you marry someone, you really got to put a lot of faith in them, don't you? And at the back of your mind, when you're doing this covenant thing, when you're making this decision before God and everybody else, boy, you're thinking, is she going to be the right person? Are they going to be right for me? And there's a lot at stake. I mean, you're giving them everything. And so there's doubt. But that doubt doesn't have to be bad. It can push us deeper in to where now we don't doubt the little things. There's always going to be questions. Always going to be fear that might creep into our relationships of love. That is how life works. Doubt is part of life. And all sane people do it. We need to doubt ourselves. If you never doubt yourself, if you never see that you're wrong, that's not a good thing. I can already tell you from a sane position that you're insane if you think that. You're always right. None of us are always right. None of us are always trustworthy. We accidentally sometimes break promises. We second-guess ourselves, and I'm saying that can actually be a good thing. Can it? We don't need to trust ourselves, right? If we could trust ourselves, then we don't need God. We don't need Jesus Christ. We need to... I need to question Marshall. Marshall, what are your motives for this? Why are you doing this? Why are you saying this to this person? Are you trying to one-up them? You know, somebody mentioned something, and I mentioned it back, and I think to myself, oh man, I just, I just tried to show them up. What am I doing? Why would I do that? You know, why would I treat this person in this way? We ought to doubt ourselves. We ought to doubt other people. It's, <laughs> it's always fascinating to me. Even when I know that someone is an expert, and I hear them talking about their expertise, I'm sitting thinking, oh, they know that. Do they really know that? I don't know about that. I doubt. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm a natural skeptic. That can be good as long as I'm even skeptical of my skepticism. But most of the time I doubt what people say. Sometimes I, even, even, even sometimes I know that some dude went through a great story and I'm thinking, is he really telling the whole truth? We just, it's hard for us to trust people, isn't it? Ultimately, isn't it true that we can only trust God at the end of the day? Isn't He the only one in our life who will never let us down? Who can always, always be trusted? Isn't He the only one? We don't need to trust ourselves. We don't need to trust other people always. But we do need to always trust God. We can always trust Jesus. It's always fascinating to me that, that people can know things in their head and, and believe it on paper and yet not really believe it. You ever notice how nurses know that smoking kills, right? At least that's what we're told. And yet they're out there back puffing away like a choo-choo train. 
and you're thinking, okay, all right, the paper says it. You actually say you believe it can kill you, and yet you're, you're puffing away. I don't understand. Not to pick on them, all of us are like that, aren't we? It's not just them. We know that sin can kill us. Not just physically, but worse, kill our soul. Kill love. Kill forgiveness. Kill kindness. Kill the fruits of the Spirit. We know that and yet we do it. We're insane. Here's the good news. God can make us sane. He can do that. We're not naturally sane. We're insane. But you know what? We can be born again. We can have a new ruler that's not self, that's not Marshall, praise be to God, but rather Christ. Christ. The just, the righteous, will live by faith and not by sight. Faith, the Scripture says, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. But even Paul will say this. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Why? Because right now we have faith because as we just said in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus is veiled in heaven purposefully. He's purposely keeping Himself hidden in heaven so that we can choose Him. He's already chosen us. Even when He came in the flesh, wasn't He veiled in the flesh? That's why we call it a mystery. It's a great mystery. And He does that for our sake. Because to meet God personally, like we'll do one day, there is no choice involved. You have to obey Him when He's standing there. God wants us to love Him. Not just to believe in our head and say, Oh yeah, I believe this. I believe He died on the cross. No, no, no. Love. Love God. Love God. We must love God. And the only way to love God is to know God through the eye of faith. We must believe. I know there's doubts. I know sometimes I lay my head down at night and think, What am I doing all this for? Is all this stuff really true? I mean, I preach about it. I teach about it. I live it. I teach my kids about it. Is it all true? We have these doubts. That's okay. Just don't let it turn into disbelief. Let it push you to Him. Let it push you to obedience to Him. Not just a mental thing. But instead, an action thing. John Wesley had a nice way of talking about faith that is really illustrated with a chair. He said, you first must believe in your head that Jesus did the things He did. What the Bible said. Just like I believe that this chair can hold me, hold my weight. I mean, looking at it, it looks structurally sound. I think it can hold my weight. The second step, however, to being a Christian is not to just stop there, is it? That's not enough, is it? James says, look, even the demons believe in God. They see Him. They know Him. Yet they're still demons of hell. It's not enough just to believe in your head. We must consent in our will. 
We must want to be His and He to be ours. And so I have to, I have to not only believe the chair. I, I mean, I'm not sitting down yet, am I? I believe the chair can sit, hold me, I'm not going to sit down yet. I have to want to sit down. I have to know my need to sit down. Consent of the will. But even that's not enough. I actually have to sit down, right? I can't just desire to sit down. I actually have to do it. Do it. And that's why faith must be something we do. Not just believe in our head. Not just desire. What did that one guy say in the Bible to Jesus? I believe, help my unbelief. What we need to do is sit down. This is resting in Jesus right here. Actually doing it. Resting our heart in Him. This is full faith. Which is why there's no division between faith and works. It's one. Your faith is a great work. And one of the most important ones that will lead you into everything else. I'll end with this. The story of a, I don't know, stunt guy who, who uh, back in the day, he um, strung a wire from one end of the Niagara Falls to the other. And without using any safety nets or anything like this or any cables or whatever, he, uh, he pushed a barrel across Niagara Falls. Everybody's like, yeah, right on. That's, that's awesome, man. You know, we get excited about stuff like that, you know, because it's dangerous. Uh, because we don't believe he can do it. Um, we doubt. And so then he, he turns to the crowd and he says, look. He says, hey, look, you guys like that? And they're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. What's, you know, what's next, man? He says, look, do you believe that I can actually push a person in the barrel across? They're like, oh, yeah, you can do it, man. You can do it. We believe. We believe. Kind of like me with the saints. We believe. And so then he comes home with the truth. He says, well, who's willing to volunteer? Now, they said they believed, right? They were cheering that they believed. They wanted him to do it because they believed he could, right? And yet, when it came down to it, no one was willing to get into the barrel. No one. No one. I'm going to ask you something. You say that you believe. But are you really willing to get into the barrel of Christianity? Of Jesus Christ? This is about a relationship. This is about a real person that's going to ask you to actually do real things. (laughs) It's not just something you believe and then you're done with that for the week. Okay, see you next week, guys. Thanks a lot. No, He's going to tell you to do certain things. He's going to change you. He's going to tweak things about you. He's going to ask you not to do certain things. He's going to demand certain things of your life. Are you you ready for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get in the barrel. Do it. Are you willing to spend your life away for Him? Are you willing to really give control of your, your life to Him. Do you really want to say yes to Jesus? It's a real question. Count the cost. It's a real cost. It's going to cost you your life. But the return is out of this world. Literally. The return is Him. And one day when the veil is removed and we all see Him as He is face to face, The choosing will be done. The choice will be over. It's His grace that allows us now to choose Him. Allows us now to obey Him. 
That's only by His grace that He's hidden. It's actually a good thing that He doesn't just show up because some of us need a lot of working on. Some of us aren't ready. But you can be ready because He's actually here. It's a great mystery, but He's here. And He wants to be in here. You want to let Him into the barrel of your life? We're not in control. He is. Even if you think you're in control, you're not. You're insane. Do you love Jesus Christ because today He can put a love in your heart? You really believe that? I mean, He can give you a new love, new life in here that spills out to other people. One that you don't have to be so concerned with yourself, but rather can be gift to other people. I want Him to do that in me. I'm going to ask Him to as we respond to Him. Amen.